You are listening to a Laison Lumineur podcast. Hello, this is Sandra Hindman, founder and president of Laison Lumineur. We specialize in manuscripts, miniatures, historic jewelry, and other small-scale works of art from the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. This occasional series records our lectures and gallery talks, insights from new publications, and interviews with collectors and scholars. Our aim is to offer an ever-wider public tools for learning about the diversity of our activities and the breadth of our interests. Welcome, and please enjoy today's podcast. Here we are at the Laison Lumineur podcast again, and I have with me today in Chicago, actually sitting next to me instead of long distance on the phone, Mark Smith, who is a professor at the École des Chartes in Paris and at the École des Hautes Etudes, and happens to be in Chicago because he's teaching at the Newberry Library, just two blocks down the street from my gallery. So, Mark, welcome. Hello, Sandra. Thanks for having me. No, thank you for doing this. So, why don't you tell me a little bit and tell our listeners about what your current post is. So, actually, you have two posts, but maybe you could start with the École des Chartes. Yes, the the École des Chartes is my main post. It's the post I've been in longest. I've been there since 1995. Maybe your listeners don't know exactly what the École des Chartes is. I might say a couple of words about that. The École des Chartes is um, an institution that is uh, celebrating its bicentenary this year. It was uh, established in 1821, and its main field is what would be traditionally called the auxiliary disciplines of history, history and philology. And uh, it is, may I interrupt, um, because I know that some Americans thought it was the École des Chartes, <laughs> meaning the cathedral, but it's actually chart spelled like charts with an E-S at the end, right? Yes, exactly. It means the school of charters, meaning originally the school, of, the school for the study of medieval documents, which is no longer limited to the medieval period. We, we now have just as much on uh, the uh, early modern and contemporary world as on medieval studies. Um, so we have a, a number of chairs such as uh, Romance Philology, Medieval Latin, uh, the History of Institutions and Archives and so on. I, in my field, is Latin paleography. But Lat- it's very yeah. famous, the École des Chartes. Thank you. It must be, <laughs> for sure, I mean it must be, what, a hu- more than a hundred? No, two hundred. Two hundred. Two hundred. So, yeah. and many, many, many famous like antiquarians or scholars or whatever from the 19th century and earlier are what we call Chartists, right? Right. And some of the most famous Chartists are not, were not scholars at all. There were people like Georges Bataille, uh, or a few uh, more literary uh, figures than uh, most of us who usually become archivists, librarians, historians, and, and so on. So you um, teach um, to your students at the École des Chartes how to read Latin and vernacular documents. Right. Is that your teaching field? Yes, Latin paleography, one should specify, is not only about texts in Latin, it's the study of writing in the Roman alphabet, which can be Latin but also 
any kind of uh, vernacular. Uh, and so at the École des Chartes, yes, it's mostly Latin and French. And the École des Chartes also has quite a tradition for the history of the book. Am I not right? Yes, right. Especially since the times of uh, Henri-Jean Martin. You uh, told me today that you had uh, known as one of his students at the Newbury Library. Yes, so, he came and yeah, did a summer yeah. seminar and I was very interested because he has a book called L'Apparition du Livre, or The Appearance of the Book, mm -hmm. or The Origin of the Book. So yes, Henri-Jean Martin. Yeah, and so that tradition is carried on today by uh, well, two different chairs, one for, for early printed books and one for 19th and 20th century media up to La Bande Dessinée, uh, cinema and so on. And what kind of degree do your students get? Because if I understand it right, they don't get what we in America would call a doctorate. They get another degree. They become a chartiste. Yeah, we have a number of, well, we have at least three different uh, kinds of degrees that they can, different kinds of students can get from the École des Chartes. The main uh, curriculum leads to a rather exotic degree called le Diplôme d'Archiviste Paléographe. And those are what you would call chartiste. Then in recent years we have uh, started delivering other degrees, uh, master's degrees and uh, even a doctorate to students from different, different backgrounds. Whereas the students known as chartistes come to the Ecole through a competitive exam. So and it's paid for by the years. French government, yeah. isn't it? Completely. Yeah, exactly. Two years after Free! Their... Imagine that. <laughs> Two years after their baccalaureate. Then they get paid yeah, for four years as uh, civil servants in training, as future archivists, librarians, and so on. And then at the end of this, uh, this um, curriculum, they get this Diplôme d'Archiviste Paléographe, and they can carry on to get a doctorate later. Or, or... And am I right, or is this not right, that then they oh, the government, X number of years of service for having been paid to go to school, and they have to work, and they get paid to work, but they have to work in a library, museum, public institution for a certain number of years. Is that correct? Yes, they need to, to remain in, some, in any kind of public position for 10 years after they... Uh, 10 years? Yeah, That's 10 long. years after they begin studying at the Ecole des Chartes, so mm. it would be six years after they leave the Ecole. So it's like serfdom, they're indentured exactly. servants <laughs> afterwards, it's very medieval. Right. So you also told me, and I, maybe I didn't realize this, that now, or for the past several years, you teach at the Ecole des Hautes Etudes as well, which is not the Ecole mm. des Chartes. What's the Ecole des Hautes Etudes, and why do you teach in these two different places? Yeah, the Ecole des Hautes Etudes is a completely different institution that was um, established in 1869 in order to import to France the uh, teaching format of the German seminar. Uh, and so Gee, I didn't know yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. I thought the Ecole des Hautes Etudes <laughs> was relatively modern and recent. Well, um, there are two different Ecole des Hautes Etudes now. The one I'm at is the Ecole Pratique des Hautes Etudes, which was originally uh, five different sections, and then a sixth section was added for social science in general that then moved away from the original Ecole Pratique and became the Ecole des Hautes Etudes en Sciences Sociales. Maybe that's the one you know. 
No, no, I think yeah. I know the pratique one. Okay. So, Jean-Claude Schmidt, right? <laughs> no, no oh, Jean-Claude Schmidt oh. is the, the other one. Oh, the yeah, other right. one, I see. So they're see. both hautes études. I see, okay. some degree okay. of confusion. Yeah, okay. Right. So, and I think you told me that, first of all, is it normal mm. to teach at both? And is your teaching different it, at the École des Hautes Études? Yeah, it has happened before. But the, um, the style of teaching is, is completely different. At the École des Chartes, I teach a general introduction and then essentially practical uh, skills in reading and uh, analyzing scripts in the Roman alphabet from ancient Roman times to the 17th century. Uh, this is aimed at future archivists and librarians, as I said, who should be able essentially to read these texts, to edit them, to transcribe them, edit them, and assess uh, when, where, these documents and books were written and so on. Um, but the focus is mostly on what you would find in French libraries and archives. We focus mainly on what is most difficult to read, actually. So we leave aside uh, a number of fields such as um, French literary manuscripts that would be easier to read, at least the scripts would be easier to read, not necessarily the language, but compared to uh, books such as uh, scholastic treatises on theology and so on, which require hard work. And so we spend more time on those, or on notarial cursive scripts, uh, judicial minute books, and uh, the kind of uh, material you would find in French archives. So it's, um, yes, sort of it's very... It's very specialised. It's very specialised and oriented, yeah, especially towards practical skills, um, but a specialized yeah. training of mm. practical skills yeah. for a very small sector of the population. Right. Whereas, Whereas the hautes études, um, the nice thing about the hautes études is that they are research seminars on any subject you can think of. My chair is defined very generally as paleography and the history of writing in the Roman alphabet. No dates, no nothing, so I can do anything and I have done seminars on ancient Roman scripts, on contemporary digital type huh. design. And at the moment, well, I've done, yes, also practical seminars uh, in German paleography, Italian paleography, Carolingian uh, diplomatic scripts, anything uh, that could be of, of interest to any kind of audience. The nice thing is also that the audience keeps changing uh, as you move from one subject to another. The people in the audience are not necessarily historians. They can be type designers, calligraphers, mm. people who have an interest in letter forms in general. It's and nice. do they get, a, what kind of degree do they get then? Or um, can you just go as a sort you, of what you, we might call yeah. an adult education course? Yeah, exactly. You, you can just go, take a degree at the École des Études, you can get a master's degree or a doctorate. Uh, but many of the people who... Uh, attend the seminars are actually just there for their pleasure and so that's also do they get paid to go there or wonderful. can <laughs> someone i know who you know likes medieval manuscripts mm. and you know wants to read their book of hours at home could they mm. go to the école des hautes études would they have Certainly. to pay no no well they have to pay a little something but it's uh, but very it's, reasonable nothing like it's not like harvard nothing like harvard <laughs> nothing like american tuition <laughs> fees no, no. northwestern hopkins they're uh, all the same and the same is true of the école des chartes mm -hmm. we have many people who just walk in uh, pay mm. a small fee and uh, can sit uh, and take a course as an and, and external. Listen to what's going on, yeah. yeah. Mm. I want to just um, back up one minute because it's probably already obvious to our listeners that 
Mark Smith does not sound like a Frenchman, and yet he teaches in a French school, and Smith does not sound like a French name, and Mark is spelled with a C. So um, I think it would be interesting to um, people who listen to the Les Lumière podcast to know a little bit about who you are and what your background is and why you speak English so flawlessly as well. <laughs> well, my, my background, um, national cultural background, I was born in England. Uh, my father is English, as the name Smith says. My mother's French. Uh, I was raised mostly in Italy, really from the age of seven, uh, Italy and partly in Germany. And I only went to France to study at the Ecole des Chartes. Uh, like many other professors at the Ecole des Chartes, I actually studied at the Ecole des Chartes because mm. the disciplines are so specific that uh, most of the people who can teach them actually learned them in the same there. place. Yeah, yeah, studied at the Ecole. And there isn't, I mean, I can't think of an American equivalent of an Ecole des Chartes. Is there? Uh, no, there isn't. There are practically no equivalents anywhere. There are a couple of institutions. Uh, there is the Österreichisches Institut für Geschichtsforschung, so, so the um, Austrian Institute for Historical Research. There was a school in Germany at Marburg that was somewhat similar, but this has moved in recent years more towards sort of modern digital records management and so on, so they're not so much into paleography and all that anymore. And then there are more or less similar schools in, in Italy. There's the Vatican School, hmm. uh, and then local schools next to uh, local archives in Italy that do more or less the same kind of training. Uh, but everywhere else, and also partly in Italy, that kind of skill is acquired at universities, of course, uh, mm-hmm. doing common well, standard university. Uh, right, training. where they right. teach paleography, yeah. for right. example. Now, we know each other partly yeah. through manuscripts because, of course, I'm in France since 1991 before you taught at the Ecole des Chartes, and um, because um, I'm interested in medieval manuscripts, including their handwriting, although I'm not a paleographer. But we know each other also through medieval and Renaissance rings because you have been become my go-to person for reading any inscription on medieval and Renaissance rings. And I think you told me that like you might even teach a course because your Ecole des Hautetudes allows you to teach broadly and and you could do funeral slabs, you could do rings, you could can you tell us a little about that interest? Yeah, that's one uh, nice thing about being a paleographer that there are not many paleographers around uh, so people have something to read uh, will they come to you they come to you and they they show you things you've never seen before uh, ask you what you think about them and uh, I've learnt uh, plenty just from things of all kinds being thrown at me from all parts of the world. But that's also because you're naturally curious probably every paleographer doesn't want to look at any piece of written <laughs> Um, inscription, but anyway. Yeah, maybe some paleographers would turn the questions down and say, no, sorry, I don't know about this. Not my you know, field. Go, go away. <laughs> but, yeah, one thing I've noticed is that much of the material that people bring to me with questions is actually epigraphy, meaning inscriptions of various kinds. Uh, people have found a graffito in their local church, and so rings are part of that, yes. Uh, those jewels inscribed with all sorts of 
mottos in there, mostly Gothic scripts, mostly mean meaning what I've seen from you. Um, oh, but they're also posy rings. Yes, with also that posy rings. Wide but, variety. But of, they're easier to read, so uh, I don't get them right. As much. <laughs> I usually get the difficult stuff, which is uh, sometimes frustrating because you really can't find an answer. But I do like riddles and mysteries, and so. Uh, and now, of course, um, we can blow these things way up on mm. a screen, which makes it much easier to read them as well, even oh, yes. for someone skilled like you. No, digital photography has helped a lot, yeah, especially for people with skills with bad eyes. You know, so. um, what kind of, let's say you taught a course on rings mm. and inscriptions, what might be the kinds of things you would do in this course? I mean, you're not just going to sit there and read ring after <laughs> ring after ring because that's going to be too boring. Now, the interesting thing about rings and about epigraphy and about uh, unusual scripts in general is in part the question of how scripts change uh, when, uh, how they change according to media, to techniques, to tools. Um, in, in the case of rings, the scripts look like nothing I'd seen before because the kinds of scripts that would have been used originally in books for very formal Gothic handwriting, but treated by craftsmen who needed to write them very small inside a ring, uh, engraving them and not writing them with a quill. And so the result is technically and formally very different. And so looking at many rings and then at other metal objects from the same period, you can see how a specific uh, profession uh, develops its own traditions in the ways in which it produces letter forms. And so the results become quite different. And you can probably mm. then um, extrapolate to the kinds of tools mm. they used yeah. as well. Well, the kinds of tools would be pretty standard. basic, I think, pretty standard. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. and engravers' urine. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But the, uh, the interesting thing is that the formal result uh, that gives these scripts a completely different style and it also very often makes them very difficult to read because they're very small and because they have these peculiar letter forms. Um, What's the most interesting, I think I know the answer yeah. to this, but I'm going to get <laughs> you to say it. What's the most interesting epigraphic ring question that was brought to you ever? Not necessarily by me, but in general. ring question. Uh, there was one that, I, uh, that I'm fond of because it was particularly difficult, uh, which was one with the inscription on the outside of the ring, very badly worn, uh, the letters only half visible. Um, the interesting thing from my perspective was that even before I could read it, I could guess it was Spanish because hmm. it had long eyes, uh, mean hmm. eyes descending below the baseline. <laughs> so based on that, I managed to read the inscription in the end and hmm. found that it was Spanish. But that was, uh, yeah, as I, as I say, the ones I, uh, I like are often the difficult ones. I thought you were going to talk about yeah. the Joan of Arc ring. <laughs> oh, that's another one, yeah. So yeah, that's another aspect of, the, uh, of um, expertise in general is the question of forgeries. Uh, forgeries or, well in this case it wasn't really a forgery, was it? No. It was just a sort of mis, misplaced in the, in the sense that the, uh, the place it was ascribed to was not the right one. Yeah, it was a, um, a ring that was 
on the market a few years ago, maybe you remember the exact date today, um, that was sold for a... Yeah, very uh, huge a, sum. A very huge sum of money um, as a ring that was supposed to have belonged to Joan of Arc, uh, based on a description of a ring found in the, um, in the trial of Joan of Arc, the descriptions of two rings, uh, and this one had... And wasn't Jesus, the, it had Jesus Maria, I think. And I think, yeah. wasn't the, didn't the trial record actually say something about what inscription was on yeah, the exactly. ring? Yeah, exactly. It said Jesus Maria, I think. And so that was a ring that was taken from Joan of Arc uh, while she was a prisoner. Um, and the one that was on the market turned up in England. Uh, it came from a family who had kept it for ages, centuries. Uh, and Maybe. in the family tradition, considered, considered the, um, the ring to have come from Joan of Arc, presumably because of these words, Jésus, Maria, Jesus uh, and Mary, uh, which are words who were also found on the banner of Joan of Arc. She not only used them on, on rings. Um, so looking at the inscription, yes, I wasn't quite convinced uh, with the date of the, of the lettering, and you, Sandra, were not convinced with that's the uh, the other side of that expertise. Uh, the shape of the ring was more like an English ring than a French ring. And, mm -hmm. um, yes. And I thought well, that the inscription the could Sorry. be run read differently too. Uh, I, is that not correct, or was the inscription correct? I think the reading was okay. Okay. Yes, mm -hmm. uh, yes and I remember that the people who had, who had bought it. Uh, wanted to get me on board to say it was authentic and uh, I I, see. after one phone call they uh, dropped the uh, they the, decided the you were the wrong the <laughs> wrong <laughs> expert you weren't going to give the right person. answer for your expertise yeah, right. yeah. So, and I haven't heard anything recently about this ring it's uh, sort of disappeared from the uh, but it's interesting. I mean, we should, we should, if you teach this course, we should bring in some rings and, and have a dialogue about mm. them because you're quite right. I'm, I'm not going to be good at the epigraphy, mm. but I'm going to be more expert on the form mm. and what the form tells us. Right. Um, so, um, as is often the case, you need multiple expertises for works of art and people should collaborate and communicate across disciplines. Because these rings can be difficult, they're often difficult to place and to date, and so both sides of the question are useful. And beyond rings, I have been interested enough in that kind of script or technique for writing that I've looked beyond rings as rings and looked at other metalwork, reliquaries, um, Cutlery. Or, yeah, other work by uh, late medieval, um, late medieval goldsmiths, uh, including the earliest copper copper plate engravings uh, from the 15th century, where you find exactly the same kind of lettering. So that's uh, quite interesting. And these copper plate engravings is, is that the one you described from the Cluny? No, that's something else. Uh, Cluny. The cl uh, didn't doesn't the Cluny have a um, an engraving on a base metal of ah, goldsmith. Yes. Yeah, yeah, but that, that's not. Uh, it's not an engraving meant to be printed. Uh, I meant printed images from copper plate engravings. I see. Um, no, the one in Cluny is. I'm not sure what the English word would be. In French, it's une table d'inscription. It means uh, a sheet of metal where goldsmiths would impress 
their personal marks. And then they would write their name next to the mark. And the names are all written in this kind of very square-looking script, grid-like script mm -hmm. based on simple uh, horizontal and vertical lines. Hmm. So, uh, mm -hmm. And it's an international thing because I've seen the same kind of writing in German metal work, Spanish and so on. So it's, uh, mm -hmm. it would be an interesting uh, addition to the uh, landscape of medieval scripts. It's a kind of script that has never been described in any kind of uh, paleographical literature. And an interesting complement to the study of goldsmith work. Mm, goldsmith, um, yeah. It's style, technique. So I'm waiting for this course. I'm, I'm expecting to come, and if I don't sit in like a fly on the wall in the back, I'll come and um, participate in a session, if you'll allow but me. It would be one session, I suppose, like a couple yeah, of hours or, of course. or, no, it'd or be, a few hours. It would be fun. It would be interesting to have you there. So um, apart from rings um, or jewelry or inscriptions in general on metal, I think your major work is um, the work that you've been researching for a long time is on writing books. Now, remembering that our audience is um, a general one, but interested in manuscripts, what is interesting? What do you think they would find interesting? Well, first of all, what's your project? Yeah. And what would they find interesting about um, these French writing books? What is a writing book, after well, all? Yes, a writing book is... Uh, a collection of models for teaching handwriting. Which we don't teach anymore in America. Yes, and that's one of the aspects uh, that make it so interesting. Because, uh, and that's one of, the, uh, yeah, one of the reasons why people often get excited when you, uh, when you do mention the teaching of handwriting, models for handwriting and so on. It's the kind of subject that everyone has a personal opinion about. They and have, story. They have memories. Mm -hmm. uh, Old people will tell you that young people are not as disciplined as they used to be in school, teaching, uh, learning handwriting and so on. So everyone has personal reactions, or other people will say, no, handwriting is uh, completely useless, uh, keyboards are quite enough. Um, but the, uh, these books are yeah, based on the handwritten models that writing masters would have handed to their students in class. But these are not handwritten. We also have handwritten models, but those I'm particularly interested in are models that are engraved, once again, um, so that they can be printed in imitation of handwritten models. Um, so writing masters would not use these in class as such. They would circulate them as a way of advertising their own skills uh, and of offering uh, models to other masters who might like to imitate them or even to common school masters. Uh, writing masters being specialised in the teaching of handwriting and not as schoolmasters. Uh, well, schoolmasters would do a, a range of subjects where writing masters would concentrate on writing and often arithmetic. What's the when is yeah. the last writing master? Do you know this? When is the last writing master in France? Um, I would say just before the advent of the typewriter. Wow, which is Be when? Uh, which is 1869 mm -hmm. or something. I see, I see. Remington typewriters. Because uh, that's one important aspect of their trade, is that they can teach children or young adults, but they also teach people who want to go into handwriting as a professional career, who want to work for the Royal Administration or for the local lord uh, in some... Uh, financial office or 
especially in England, uh, they want to go into business or banking as, as clerks. Uh, so these people had to learn to write perfectly up to the date when they were replaced by typewriters. And so even when everyone started going to school in the 19th century, you would still have professional schools of handwriting for mm -hmm. clerks. Mm -hmm. And some of the people who uh, ran these schools in, in the 19th century were among the greatest collectors of early writing books. Mm. And much of what we have today, uh, what, what we find in uh, public libraries, all private collections today, comes from these great collectors of the 19th century. And are the French, I mean, we were talking earlier today with your class about handwriting, learning handwriting in school in America and whatever, the 50s and 60s. And I had um, horizontal writing books, which are, I haven't had very many French writing manuals, but I've had many German ones, and they're the same format. Mm. They're horizontal ruled pages. Are French ones of similar format to that? Yes, originally yes. You get different formats at different dates. The earliest ones are horizontal. Well, mm -hmm. no, the very earliest ones in Italy are, are vertical, the small formats. Uh, then you get many horizontal books because I suppose it's easier to just place a horizontal uh, model next to your horizontal writing material and uh, copy from something that's closer to what you're actually writing. Uh, and then, yes, in, in France it changes, in the 18th century especially, it becomes vertical. But, but the, the main thing maybe about these books, compared to what we find in later, that is, 19th century uh, writing models, is how splendid they are. I mean, in the 19th century, simplified writing models for millions of pupils in schools around Europe. The aim is to get everyone to be able to write a, a basic script, more or less the same, in more or less simplified, simplified form. Whereas in these early writing books, part of the aim, as I said, is to advertise the master's skill. And, so and to write many, many, many different kinds. Yeah, exactly. So you get many kinds of scripts uh, and also very elaborate uh, decoration, flourishing and all sorts of uh, demonstrations of virtuosity. And that's what also makes these books so beautiful, that they're at the crossroads of uh, instruction in handwriting, book arts, and engraving art history, if you will. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, I thought of, as we were talking about this, I thought of um, another topic that I wonder if you've touched on that is, you know, you know, sort of bridges the, the boundary between um, paleography and art history. And that's that books of ours are often said to be used to teach children to read. And there are many books of ours that start with or have in them mm. alphabets. Mm. Um, is this of interest to, I mean, it is script, but maybe they're not actually writing in them, but they do have these mm. alphabets. Yeah. Uh, well, that's um, another thing that makes instruction in the later Middle Ages or the early modern period different from our own, is that reading and writing were taught as two completely separate skills. Uh, and there was a long debate on whether they should be taught together, which, could, which should come first, and so on. And so many people in the, in the Middle Ages might have learned to read without learning to write. Mm -hmm. And so you to, learned to read, right. so they have these like alphabets mm. to learn to read, but they don't have model sentences 
which would be used to learn to write. No, and they probably wouldn't have used books of hours to learn to write anyway, because the kinds of scripts they would have used in everyday life would have been very different from the scripts in uh, books of hours, which were very formal book scripts, mm-hmm. whereas they would mostly use more common sort of cursive scripts and documentary scripts rather than book scripts. Mm-hmm. There's another thing that's quite different from, yes, as you mentioned earlier, a professional scribe, uh, unlike someone who has learned to write today, uh, is someone who could master sometimes dozens of different scripts. And not just because, just not for not just for decorative purposes or just for the sake of virtuosity, but because different scripts would be used in different contexts. With different so he functions. could have, yeah. he's like mm. more valuable, uh, his services are more valuable mm. because he can work for some luxury patron doing a book of hours and he could work for the court as a transcriber, as a secretary. Yeah, we have clerks at the court of Avignon, for instance, the papal court of Avignon, who has, uh after office hours would write books for wealthy patrons mm-hmm. in scripts mm-hmm. similar or different uh, mm-hmm. from what they would use mm-hmm. in, their, in their offices. Something else came up today that I think maybe um, readers might find interesting and that was um, left-handed and right-handed mm. scribes. I mean you mentioned that there is yeah. actually an article on left-handed scribes but I was wondering you know how you can tell and whether being a left-handed scribe was, you know, now it's like, don't change your child from left-handed to right-handed, you'll interfere with his like brain patterns. But I guess um, then mm. everyone was transformed into right-handed, is that yeah, correct? Yeah, for, for a long time. You needed to be right-handed because of the kinds of tools you would use. I mean, the kinds of pens that were used in classrooms when I was uh, a child. Uh, were impossible to use with your left hand. They were sharp, elastic metal nibs that would uh, that would spout ink all over you if you mishandled them. Go through through the paper, or you know, you just needed to do uh, as the tool uh, wanted you to do. In in medieval times, using a quill with your left hand would probably have been quite a challenge too, especially for scripts that you would have written on a horizontal surface, uh, connected scripts, cursive scripts, etc. But I, as we were talking today, I, I thought one difference with book scripts in the Middle Ages is that, that uh, books were copied on slanted desks and not horizontally. And so your wrist would not have been in contact with the writing surface. You were almost in the position of a painter rather than a, huh. than a writer, uh-huh. in, as we think of the writing hand today. And so, possibly for a left-handed scribe it would have been slightly less difficult. Uh, in the few cases in mm-hmm. which we do find uh, left-handed scribes in the Middle Ages, they're difficult to spot, but sometimes you get a colophon, I mean, a final note at the end of a text saying, I wrote this book with my left hand, um, <laughs> which comes, which he's a, proud which comes of. as a surprise. <laughs> and he's obviously proud. Yeah, some people sometimes think that there was a sort of very negative connotation in the left hand. It was the hand of the devil and so on, but you wouldn't mention you'd just copied this Bible with your left hand if, if you thought it would get you... Uh, right, if God, if God would stake, disapprove. You know. <laughs> um, and, yes. and so what, yeah, what we do notice, what has been noticed, uh, what was mentioned in this article on one particular uh, left-handed scribe was that his, um, his stroke sequence not, was not quite the same, that some letters were built up in a different way because he just couldn't get around it with his uh, quill otherwise. 
What's possible? I mean, speaking of quills, I think there are, you may know this better than me, I think there are instructions for the date from the Middle Ages for going to get your quills. The best quills are from snow geese that are on the island of Iona. And you're meant to take the quills, I believe, from the left-hand wing yep. of the goose because the fl the shape of the quill is then more suited to the mm. right hand. Yes. Isn't that yes, correct? That's true. Yes, true. Yeah. Usually yeah. they say that the f first two feathers in, in the wing, uh, from the left wing, yes, which will rest more comfortably in your hand. And because they're larger, too. They're the larger yes, they feathers. Larger. Uh -huh. How interesting. And sometimes you would need small feathers uh, for very small scripts. Uh -huh. and there it is said that you might use small feathers or very hard feathers, like crow feathers, uh, mm. or feathers from smaller birds. But I'm, Do we know uh, that? I mean, I well, know about the snow geese feathers, but yeah. do we know, do we have texts that say your feathers come, this feather should come from a yeah, crow? There, there are mentions of that, yes, in, in wow. late texts. Yeah. How about ortolans? Uh, Ordinance, yes, for, for pocket Bibles you might use. <laughs> wow, how interesting. This could be a whole nother... Feathers, yeah. you know, descript, catalog descriptions could mm. change to written in Gothic um, formal script with the feather from an ortolan. <laughs> <laughs> I thought of another topic that I think uh, I'd like to hear what you have to say, or maybe it's not something that is of interest to you, but it certainly has to do with um, writing, and that's letter writing. Mm. Because, of course, people are very interested, actually, in letter writing nowadays, um, medieval letter writing. I, I don't mean uh, writing manuals, but letter writing, because letter writing is disappearing. Mm. But wouldn't letter writing be a, like actual personal letter writing, be another area that would be of interest to you? You do a course on letter writing. Yes, one could, uh, and uh, especially in, in the English-speaking world, there have been a number of studies recently on the material form of letters, uh, how they were folded, how they were sealed, uh, how they were laid out. But uh, also, I would think, yeah. the different scripts and that also, you would yes, use in them. was coming to, yeah. The, 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 nice, the interesting thing about uh, letter writing is that you get scripts from people who are non-professionals. Right. Whereas most of the, uh, the written material that we do have from earlier centuries, uh, such as legal material or books, uh, was written by professional scribes. And so it's very difficult to have a clear picture of how people would write when they were not professionals, uh, what kind of basic skills one might acquire when one, when one, one was a, an artisan uh, or even a peasant. You know. mm -hmm. Uh, well, peasants a, probably well, didn't actually well, write letters. Maybe not in the 13th century, but in the uh, in the 17th or 18th century, mm -hmm. yes. Th mm -hmm. There's a recent book, um, I forget the name of the author, I'm afraid, uh, who has unearthed plenty of uh, letters, especially from English peasants uh, from that period. Hmm. Uh, and you see that they don't write like professionals. They, their spelling is phonetic. Hmm. Uh, their letter forms might be quite uh, wild, but they do write. Many of them do, even mm -hmm. for just writing to a relative who's mm -hmm. gone for a couple of days and so on. So it's, I would it's think much that more common than yeah, one no, I might think imagine. It would be interesting. I, I would think that um, that um, 
letter writing also, or, or writing, would also be a way of studying another field of manuscripts that is quite popular now, which are what we call the selfie book. That is books copied for oneself. Hmm. Like, are they manuscripts, I mean, are they copied for yourself in a, do you learn a professional script to copy them for yourself, or are they copied in what kinds of scripts? I think this would be a whole area that you could... You mean medieval books? Medieval or, books. Yes. Medieval yes, manuscripts, it, yeah, there are yes. Yeah, different, different kinds of medieval manuscripts copied for yourself. There are many, many manuscripts copied in a university setting, for instance, by students who need their textbooks. Of course. And find it cheaper to copy them themselves from some official model rather than to buy a copy. So they're going to uh, copy in a quasi-professional script because they're less, yeah. going to be imitating mm. something. Mm, yes. Uh, the hand will just not be quite as good and uh, text might be more difficult to read, but anyway, it, it would look somewhat similar to what they could have bought from a professional scribe. Uh, there's, there's also the whole field of um, vernacular literature, especially in Italy. We find many books copied in uh, what is known as mercantesca, which mm -hmm. is uh, a script typical of Italian merchants, especially mm -hmm. in Tuscany. And we find many instances of vernacular literature, Dante and others, copied in this kind of script mm -hmm. by people who were copying out whole books for themselves. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Notaries writing poetry in their notarial hands, but those are professionals, mm -hmm. um, and merchants writing in a script that is the script typical of their profession, but which does not make them professional writers. Mm -hmm. in, in the same annotation, too, would be, annotation and, yes. would be an extension of right. this. Yes, baby. annotation in the margins of manuscripts yes, exactly. by, by students, or by interlinear. readers. Mm -hmm. right. So writing on books, which is considered bad today, you shouldn't write on a, write on a book, was the normal practice up to at least the 16th or 17th century. Uh, so much so that in, um, in Venice in the early 16th century there was a legal provision made for the quality of paper to be used by printers of printed books uh, to make sure that people could write in the margins. The paper should be good enough not just to print on but to write but what, what would be the difference? Like it had to be a thicker rag content to allow for writing in the margins, or you had to print with wider margins? I don't quite understand uh, it. It's the quality of the paper. I think it's the, um, it's the uh, coating of the surface of the paper mm. you know, with glue, or mm -hmm. not quite sure what the English term would be. Mm -hmm. It would be l'encollage in French. Mm -hmm. um, because a paper that is too porous, that will absorb ink, will not take handwriting without a... It, it's more like blotting paper, so mm -hmm, you get blots mm -hmm, instead mm -hmm. of words. Mm -hmm. Well, anyway, it sounds like mm. there are lots of fascinating areas that mm. one could explore. I wanted to ask you, though, about your students. Like, you know, paleography, at, I mean, in America, most positions of paleography at universities remain unfilled or go unfilled with the retirement of the famous paleographers. Is that true in Europe as well? Or are you training your students to go off and be paleographers at all the little provincial universities in France? Well, I'd like to, uh, but they're not, no, it's true, there are not many jobs for paleographers and, uh, and jobs are yeah, dwindling in Germany. They used to have plenty of chairs for historische Hilfswissenschaften. Uh, for auxiliary disciplines of history. There are far fewer now. There's still plenty in Italy and Spain. In France there are only two, 
and I had to fill both. <laughs> which, is, which is say that there are not many paleographers around. Mark um, Smith, uh, the paleographer of <laughs> France. Maybe we should title the podcast that. Right. And uh, there's another paleographer of France, which is the only permanent job in a research institution at the Institut de Recherche et d'Histoire des Textes. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and that other paleographer is Dominique Stutzmann. Uh, oh, that is his position. Yeah. I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah. So this whole section in that institution, the, the section for Latin paleography is actually one person. And so And so what right. do your students do if they don't have, they can't go off and become paleographers no, because so, there aren't any jobs. So no, you have no. like how many students a year? Fifty? Uh, not even that, no, more like twenty. But still uh, twenty yeah. for no jobs. Yeah. What do what uh, do they do? Well no jobs because they don't uh, aim at a paleographer's career. So uh, that's why what, they don't they don't usually do uh, a dissertation specifically on paleography. They do a dissertation on any other kind of historical. No, 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 not even necessarily. I mean, within the Ecole des Chartes, they can mm-hmm. choose a whole range of topics. I see. So, so I trained them yeah, mainly to become, well, to use paleography as one of the tools in their later for, careers. For but whatever not, not they as their are main doing. Focus, yes. uh-huh, right. uh-huh. And then I wanted to ask you maybe one final question. Let's say you finish your writing book, French writing manuals, and you've taught courses on, now we've expanded it to include letter writing and annotations. And I, Do you have some, I don't know, kind of dream topic, something you've always thought like, gee, I'd like to work on that someday that's, you know, related to your field, but maybe you've never really had time to do it. There's one aspect of paleography that would be really important, interesting, difficult, and would take a long time, and probably many people. And that is trying to connect the history of handwriting with linguistics, really, with the history of spelling, particularly, and trying to see in what ways the development of letter forms is correlated to the development of language as such. Um, That goes into questions of spelling, among other things. Spelling reform is always a hot topic in France. There's always Mm -hmm. someone who wants to reform our completely absurd, illogical uh, spelling system. I rather agree with that position because, as a paleographer, I'm aware that many of the more illogical aspects of our current writing, uh, current spelling system, actually came about in the late Middle Ages or shortly after as a way of dealing with problems of legibility that were typical of late medieval scripts. And that's when, for instance, a number of consonants that are not pronounced came into French spelling just as a way of making words look different. Uh, And one of the means of doing this was adding to the spelling of French words letters that came from their Latin etymology that would never have been pronounced in French. Um, so how does that actually relate to linguistics? <laughs> well, well, it has to do with the, um, the pronunciation also of the language because in many cases the ways in which words have been spelt since that period have ended up becoming the ways in which these words are pronounced. I mean, many... Mm-hmm sounds have been added to the French language over the past century or so that are actually sounds that were never pronounced hmm. in previous centuries mm-hmm. but just reflect the ways in which these words are written. Mm-hmm. You know, 
give know, an example. Maybe I can give an example. The word which is spelt leg, no leg, L-E-G-S, mm-hmm. meaning something you is a bequest. Uh huh. Uh, mm. uh, yeah. Right. Yeah. A bequest. Mm-hmm. It was traditionally pronounced le, and it came from the verb, the French verb laisser, which means to leave. Mm-hmm. I see. Right. See, and in the uh, in the Renaissance. French lawyers decided it would look nicer, spelt L-E-G-S, to make it closer to Latin legatus, hmm. to the verb legare. Uh, and so for several centuries, the, wor- the, the, the word has been spelt L-E-G-S, mm-hmm. and for the past few decades, people have started pronouncing it leg, you see? I see. So mm-hmm. uh, that's a sort of retroaction of spelling mm-hmm. on pronunciation. Mm-hmm. Linguists have often considered, have long considered, that handwriting was complete. Well, that spelling, spelling and writing, uh, was completely uninteresting. Uh, that linguistics was about spoken language. Hmm. That there was no interest for them in in the history of spelling or, or writing in general. Now changing. The position is now changing. Mm-hmm. But these are aspects that a paleographer could bring to linguistics and that have never been hmm. uh, considered mm-hmm. in any mm-hmm. way. I just um, this is yeah. probably you're probably not going to solve the the problem of the Voynich manuscript, mm. but <laughs> which is a manuscript that no one can still read at the Beinecke, as mm. you well know. But I went to the most interesting podcast mm. on that, yeah. where a linguist and a paleographer were in fact trying to collaborate to see whether the language mm. is code or whether it is some dialect that's disappeared, etc. So. Maybe you could, maybe that could be it. You could solve the Voynich. Um... Yes, I'm one of the many paleographers who have been looking at the Voynich manuscript uh, after hours uh, without telling anyone about it until they found the solution. And so there, since there. no one has found the solution, there, there's not really been a discussion yet. Yes, well, this so, is probably uh, most of our readers, our listeners don't know what <laughs> this manuscript is, but after listening to this podcast, maybe they will be spurred mm-hmm. to go and look at this other interesting medieval um, question or problem. So, thank you so much. I, I think this is fascinating. Thank um, you. I think that all the possibilities for collaboration with paleography and other disciplines and even within paleography Mm. itself are rich and deserve further attention so so thank you mark thanks for having me thank you to sandra and mark for that wonderful discussion this has been a Les Alumnier podcast. I'm Kristen Racnillo, manager of the New York Les Alumnier Gallery. We will be in New York this fall participating in person in the 61st New York International Antiquarian Book Fair. Stay tuned for our upcoming special events celebrating 30 years of Les Alumnier. You can find out more about our projects online through our website, lesalumnier.com, or you can find us on social media at Les Alumnier. You can also subscribe to our e-newsletter for entertaining and informative information about medieval art. Thanks for tuning in to this Live Menumir podcast.